Welcome to Sustainable North Florida. I'm your host, Lorianne Santamaria. Why do Microsoft and Google and these, these large companies, why do they want carbon credits? What does it do for them? It allows these companies to claim carbon neutrality. They're supporting businesses like ours who are actually doing the work, who are actually sequestering carbon, who are actually helping the environment. Welcome to Sustainable North Florida. Today, we're talking about waste. And we're talking about sustainable agriculture and carbon sequestration and a sustainable business model that ties it all together. Our guest today is Mike Kelkors. His company, Sunshine Organics, is a local company making an outsized impact on climate change. As part of my prep for today's discussion, I checked out the website for Project Drawdown. I'll include a link in the show notes. It's a great resource. And they've developed a list of all the climate solutions readily available today. And what's cool is that they quantify the gigatons of carbon dioxide emissions that could be saved if any given solution is fully implemented. So to give you an idea of the importance of today's topic, food systems and land use make up 24% of global carbon emissions. Sunshine Organics is working on at least three of the solutions listed by Project Drawdown, at least three. Moving to more sustainable agricultural practices, reducing food waste, and using biochar as a carbon sink. So... Lots to unpack here today. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Mike as much as I did. Hi, Michael. Welcome to Sustainable North Florida. Hey, Lorianne. Thank you very much. I'm really looking forward to our conversation this morning. Why don't we just start with you introducing yourself and telling us a little bit about your latest company? Yes. My name is Mike Kelkors. I'm the owner of Sunshine Organics and Compost. We do business as Compost Jacks in Jacksonville. We are the first commercial compost facility and biochar facility in in Duval County in North Florida. Great. Thanks. And can you tell us a little bit about your background and what led you to Sunshine Organics and Compost Jacks? Yes. So I always tell people I grew up in the waste industry as well as on a farm. So I grew up in the Northeast, in Southern Maine, and my family owned and operated recycling facilities. So curbside recycling facilities where we sorted and separated uh, plastics, paper, cardboard, and we we had roll-off trucks and we had a lot of tr- truck lines. We had balers and forklifts and we separated it out and we, and we turned it back into re- reusable material. Uh, and I also grew up on a large scale farm where we farmed beef cattle, uh, milk milk cows, uh, chickens, horses, turkeys, and so compost jacks or sunshine organics is kind of the the intersection of all of these companies. It's the it's the intersection between farming and the waste business. On a farm back in the '90s and 2000s, you know we we always composted, but nobody ever called it composting. It was always manure management or the waste management plan on the farm. But we always took the waste, put it in piles, we turned it, and then we reused it in the soils, whatever that waste was, whether it was manure or crop waste or anything like that. You know, when I think of sustainability, it's it's always interesting to me how things that are new so often just look back to what was old, you know, what our grandparents did. I definitely remember my grandmother in her garden, you know, throwing the food waste in her Probably she didn't call it compost either, but in her in right. her garden, she had that that little pile. And somehow we got away from that for a while, but it seems like things are, are coming back full circle. Yeah, it's definitely coming back now. What led you to North Florida? My wife was from South Florida, the Wellington area. We were both living in Boston at the time when we met. We, we got married up north. We were living in, in Southern Maine. And 
she went to UF, so she was a Gator. We had been in Florida, Georgia every year since since we had met in Boston. And we decided to move down to North Florida when we decided to start growing our own family. So Yeah, we're also ga- Gators, and I was married on Florida, Georgia weekend, which my brothers will never <laughs> forgive me for. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So um, that's good. So if you could maybe tell me a little bit about how you got the business started here. About four or five years ago, I started noticing everything in the waste industry news was talking about compost and food waste. So I said, I need to look into this. This is something that's not happening in North Florida. So I started doing research. I, I looked around. At the time, there was nobody from Atlanta to Orlando doing anything with food waste. And there's some good community composters that are around, but on a large scale, there's nobody. So so I did my research. I went out to California. I sat with this company out there called Recology. I sat with them for two weeks. I learned their whole process, and then I brought it back here. At that point, I I acquired the land that we're on. So we have 12 acres just north of Talleyrand, which is just north of the port, the downtown port, three miles north of the Jaguar Stadium. And that's when I started the permitting. We acquired the land in January 2020. We, we got the permitting started, and it took us three years to get permitted. Being the first of our kind, we had to work our way up with no matter which division we were going, whether it was zoning with the city or the solid waste department or whichever division we were going with with the city, we had to kind of tell them what we were doing, what we're not doing to convince them that we're doing a good thing here in Jacksonville. Can you walk us through the process of what it takes to make compost? Yeah, so... Compost is essentially, it's one part green waste, one part brown waste. So the the brown waste is is your carbon source. So we use wood chips. Your green waste is your food waste or any organic waste. So we take in all of the tree waste from large tree companies. So custom tree surgeons, Davy Tree, Tree Zinc, all the big tree companies in Jacksonville, they all bring in their tree waste to us. We take that in and we use that in our compost. And then we get all of our food waste from our commercial customers. So we do a lot of big bulk customers here in Jacksonville, which is why, again, I chose the Jacksonville area to start this business. So we have Budweiser here locally, who produces a lot of brewer's grain, brewer's waste. We have Maxwell House, which has coffee grounds. We have a lot of breweries in the area in general, and we have a big Kraft Heinz facility here in Jacksonville. So we get a lot of our food waste from those customers where we take in all of their big bulk food waste we put it in a mixing pit and then we mix it with the carbon, uh, which is the wood chips. From that point, what happens is all the food waste comes in the facility. It goes to our composting area, which is in the in the back of our facility, um, and it gets put into a mixing pit. In the mixing pit, we put all, all the organic waste, we mix it with wood chips, and we let it sit and soak in the wood chips for three to four days. And from that point, we put it out into a big, long windrow. It's a big, long row of of compost so what it is as it comes out it's it's pretty much wood chips and food waste mixed together and once a week we have a self-driven compost turner this compost turner just straddles those piles and it it turns the piles it spins them which adds oxygen and it and it mixes the piles as well and it keeps the temperatures lower which is what we need here in florida so if our piles are cooking at 160 degrees when we turn them, they go down to 110 to 120 degrees, and then they start cooking again from that point. So the compost turner, once a week, we turn it once a week, it adds oxygen to the piles. And in three to four months, the compost piles are done. So you mentioned that you want a lower temperature in Florida. Can you explain why that is? 
so really with a commercial facility, you want the piles to cook at about 140 degrees. Most facilities in the country have some of them have have troubles getting to that 140 level when we we have the opposite problem where ours are getting higher above 140 for too long but again ours are cooking at 160 degrees for well over three days straight so we have an opposite problem as as most people in the country due to the temperatures here in florida so okay and so the reason then for that upper limit is just to make sure that you're not cooking off any of the good bacteria that you're using the compost for Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because cool. you are, you want bacteria in the piles and you want you want as much good bacteria in the piles as you can have. So nematodes and and protozoa, any of the good bacteria that you have in the in the piles you want to keep in there. So Whatever. I've I've heard you mention before that the the bottleneck in Florida, or at least in North Florida, is the food waste. But in the Northeast, the bottleneck is actually the tree waste. So number one, is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Again, like the temperatures, we have the opposite problem here in North Florida as a lot of other facilities in in the country. So if you go to the Northeast or the West or anywhere in the country, for the most part, we we have a lot of tree waste, a lot of yard waste, a lot of landscaping waste in this area from Georgia South, really. So is is that discrepancy or is that difference because we have an abundance of tree waste or landscape waste, or is it because we have a lack of food waste or a system that doesn't um, get our food waste to where it needs to go? I think it's both. In the other areas of the country, they don't have the same trees that we have here in Florida. They have a lot of hardwoods that grow that don't fall over a lot, that people don't cut down a lot. So we also have you know, expansion here. Anytime you drive down the road, you're seeing a new development going in where all those lots have to be cleared and all those trees have to be uh, cut down to put in a new development. We're in other parts of the country, you know, in the Northeast, it, it kind of is what it is. You know, there's not a huge amount of new developments going in like there is in Florida. But then on the foodway side, it's also education. So if you go to the the Northwest, if you go to Washington state, or if you go to California, if you go to the Northeast, you know, Boston or anywhere in the Northeast, it's really, they've been doing food waste collections and food waste composting for 10 to 15 years now. So it's kind of intrinsic in what they're doing already, just like curbside recycling is. We're just, we're just a little behind in the times down here in the Southeast, but it's, it's going to catch up soon, in my opinion. That's really interesting. And I think it's important to understand those different environmental factors that we have just being in North Florida. When I first started to get, I guess you'd say, interested in sustainability and in climate change. I was reading all of these articles and listening to these podcasts focused nationally, right? And the further and further that I dug into it, I realized that you really need to understand things from a local perspective because it's so different. If you read about what's going on nationally, it doesn't necessarily apply to what we're doing here. And this is just another example of that. One of the things when I think of sustainability, usually people are thinking about that from an environmental perspective. One of the things that I tend to think about is financial sustainability. It's one thing to do work in the community that's, you know, through nonprofit, um, that there's a lot of good work that's done there. But if you're working in a nonprofit, you constantly need to be thinking about what's your next funding source, where you're going to be getting your money from. And I I love talking to business owners that are working in sustainability or have a sustainable business model. Certainly, you guys fit the bill. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the episode so far, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. Or better yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. Those are the best ways to support our efforts to highlight local sustainability stories. And now, back to the show. Let's get into biochar. 
I think that a lot of our listeners will enjoy this. People that are interested in science will want to hear about this. People that are interested in climate change and sustainability will be interested in it. And certainly people that are interested in a sustainable economy or the financial aspect of it will be interested in this topic as well. So lots to cover here. Can you start with the the history of biochar? The history of biochar dates back to the ancient Aztecs. So back in the ancient Aztec times, 2,000, 3,000 years ago, they were farming on land that was infertile. So every season, they would light the fields on fire, cover it with a thin layer of soil. And by doing that, that thin layer of soil, they smother, the, they, they create, there's no oxygen that comes out of that, and everything stays in the ground. By doing this, they created that dark, rich soil that's in the Amazons in, in the Central America region now that all the jungles are on. So they created that, that dark soil through what they called terra preta at the time. So once again, what's old is new. Yes, again, it always comes back. Can you talk a little bit about the agricultural benefits of biochar? Yes, so agricultural benefits would be straight carbon for your soil. It's straight food for the plants. Um, and what it does in, in the soil setting is it holds the it holds the nutrients in the soil for the plants to feed off. So I, I think that I heard there are two different benefits specifically when it comes to agriculture. So one is the carbon and the carbon itself is important for the plants that are growing. But then I, I think what I heard you say is that the, it helps to hold nutrients as well. So when you look at a piece of biochar, you can see it as you're holding it in your hand. You can see all the pores and what happens is all of the good stuff gets inside those and it holds it in there and it lets the plants feed off it as it's sitting there in the soil. When you and I spoke before, you mentioned the use of biochar as a filter. Okay, yeah. So yeah, I'm, as as a filter, if anybody's ever be- bought a Brita water filter, that's really what that's really biochar inside. It's a high form of biochar created in a warehouse or a lab. So, in a water filter situation, you can use biochar. There are companies in Florida that we're talking to. They're building biofilters with with biochar. They're looking specifically to to filter. Uh, pathogens from landfill waste, landfill leachate, so they can create that water source and pump it back to the water treatment facilities. And then there's there's also applications where you can use it for green algae blooms. We, we're, we're hoping to work with the state of Florida. We've been in talks with them for a few years now about doing biofilters for the water tributaries that feed into the St. John's. So because of People applying biosolids on their land, farmers applying biosolids on their land, which is wastewater treatment sludge. A lot of times what happens is the runoff runs down into the river systems and the tributaries feed into the the St. John's River, which create our green algae blooms in our river here in Florida. So by building biofilters in the tributary rivers feeding into the St. John's, we think we could eliminate a lot of the green algae bloom problems that we have here. So... So one of the reasons that we have these green algae blooms here in North Florida is because of the application of biosolids. Correct. Is that something that's an issue all over the state? Well, not all over the state. So based on Lisa Reinemann's report, I think a year and a half ago. So Lisa Reinemann with the Riverkeeper. From, with the with the St. John's Riverkeeper, yes. She did a report that shows that, so South Florida bans the land application of biosolids. So biosolids are, again, it's wastewater treatment sludge. So everything that comes out of the wastewater treatment facility that gets separated from the water, so it's anything that you flush down the drain. So they're allowing, there's different classifications of biosolids. So there's class A, class AA, and class B. In South Florida, they banned the land application of class B biosolids. 
So what's happening is all the class B biosolids, which is the underprocessed version of the biosolids, gets sent up to central and north Florida, where a lot of times it gets land applied on farms. So farms use that as a cheap fertilizer. And what happens is, again, not really too much regulation on that side, but it washes down into the rivers a lot of times off from the fields. And that's what creates the green algae blooms in our rivers. That's what adds to the nitrogen levels and the phosphorus levels in our rivers. So you can turn those biosolids into biochar, and then that could be applied in South Florida and in North Florida, correct? So yeah, there's new technologies that that keeps coming out all the time. So I've, I've heard some people question the efficacy for biochar and agricultural use. So in other words, does the application of the biochar actually have an impact on crop yield? What are your thoughts on that? There have been recent studies where they've studied the crop yields directly just from using biochar, and there has been a very big increase. So if you just have normal soil versus using soil with biochar, they've recorded increases of crop yields of up to 30% just using biochar on their fields. So not only does it have the um, the, the benefit of the of the added of the of the increased yield, but it also has the benefit of the carbon sequestration holding the carbon into the soil as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the process of making biochar? So the process is uh, a pyrolysis system. So pyrolysis is the heating of of the biomass. So it's a pyrolysis system with little to no oxygen. So what that does is it lets in just enough oxygen to keep the fire burning and it burns the biomass. Our system burns the biomass between 1400 and 1600 degrees Fahrenheit. What it does is it creates a lot of pores in the biochar as it burns it. So the high temperatures with little to no oxygen, not only does it not emit smoke, it traps the thermal energy and the thermal energy powers the system itself, but it also creates high, it creates a high porosity in the biochar when it heats it at such a high temperature. So actually, you hit on a question that I was going to ask. How how do you power all of this? What is your energy source that you use to make this pyrolysis happen? I I heard you say that it almost sounded like it was a a self-sustaining process. It pretty much is. It needs a little propane in the front end to keep the fire burning before it gets going. But once the the pyrolysis system starts, the the thermal energy that it creates due to the high temperatures of the burning, it, it powers the system itself. You put in 30 tons of feedstock on the front end, per day and you get out eight tons of biochar per day of finished biochar. So 30 tons of feedstock go in on the front end, eight tons come out on the back end. Okay. So it's so the only output that you have is biochar. There's not anything else that's released as part of the process. Yes. There is a small amount of carbon dioxide that, you know, because you're letting in a small amount of oxygen, there is a small amount of carbon dioxide that comes out. But yes, for for the most part, there's only biochar that comes out on the backside. For every one ton of biochar we produce on the back end, we know that we sequester 2.36 tons of carbon from the atmosphere and we're putting it back into the soil, which is where it where it should be stored. So can you talk about the various revenue streams that you have for biochar specifically? Yes. Yep. So biochar, along with everything else that comes across our scale, we get paid a tipping fee for when it comes in. And then, the you know, the cost of the biochar machine the pyrolysis machine itself is is very expensive however the the finished product is sold at a at a much higher uh price than it would say for compost or for mulch so and then there's carbon credits the carbon credits are paid for every one ton of biochar that you produce so you know i look at it as a three bucket system 
Uh, you, the first bucket is the tipping fees, what they pay to dump it. The second bucket is the uh, finished product. And the third bucket is the, bi- the carbon credits that somebody pays. So with carbon credits, we work with we work with a broker. He, he bundles up our credits and he sells them to other companies such as Google, Amazon, Facebook, Delta. So he sells those credits at, to those companies that want to be carbon neutral. So can you explain a little bit more about the carbon credits? Why do Microsoft and Google and these, these large companies, why do they want carbon credits? What does it do for them? It allows these companies to claim carbon neutrality but they really haven't changed what they're doing, what their processes are for the most part. You know, they they try to, but essentially they're supporting businesses like ours who are actually doing the work, who are actually sequestering carbon, who are actually helping the environment. So they're they're supporting us and they're paying for us so we can expand our operations and do more. One of the questions that I have with respect to carbon credits and how this all works is if I'm a company and I want to offset the carbon that I'm emitting into the atmosphere, I purchase a carbon credit. But when I look at the market, my understanding is that there are some carbon credits that are worth $200 per ton. And there are some carbon credits, such as if you do electrochemical ocean capture, that's worth $1,600 a ton. So why isn't a ton of carbon worth the same no matter how it's produced? It's a sliding scale. So EBC in, in Europe Puro Earth, and then there's one more that, that escapes me right now, but they are the ones who verify the credits and who package them up and sell them. So there's a, there is a due diligence with the carbon credits. So they make sure your operations are, are, are clean, you're doing the right things, that you're not emitting any emissions that, that you don't have to. So if, if you have, a, say, an open-style kiln and you create biochar, you can't get carbon credits for it because the, the carbon is just escaping into the atmosphere. When we met before, you told me that they'll pay more for something that's more permanent. So the actual carbon itself is sequestered. Okay. So, yeah. Um, so, you know, sinking, sinking carbon into the ocean is, is one of the most permanent ways to, to do carbon sequestration. So, for instance, the seaweed fields in the, in the ocean or doing anything in the ocean is really the, the, top, the top tier, I guess you would call it. You know, biochar is somewhere in the middle. Biochar has a greater, a greater opportunity because there's more, there's a lot of biomass out there that you can sequester and put it in the ground. It's not necessarily the highest tier for, for carbon sequestration, for carbon credits. So it, it's all based on how long the carbon sequestration lasts. So, you know, carbon in the in the ocean lasts for thousands to tens of thousands of years, where carbon in the soil lasts for what they say is 100 to 1,000 years. Okay. So the carbon credits are based on, number one, the process that, that it's made and the, the longevity of the carbon sequestration itself. Okay. Okay. So I think I understand. Would it make sense if I said it this way, that the value of the car- carbon credits is dependent on both the quality of how they're made, how, how you're able to actually hold the companies accountable for how it's made, and then also the longevity of the carbon sequestration that's happening? Correct. Yes. Yep. Okay. Um, okay. So, Mike, do you have any suggestions for where people can find more information either about your company or, or about compost or, or biochar? Yeah. So we look for partners and working with people directly. So, you know, we don't want to be the people out there building biofilters for the green algae blooms in the rivers or anything like that. So we want to be the provider and provide the biochar associated with it and have somebody else do it. So we're always looking for partnerships. We're looking for people to 
to help any way they can to to make connections. Anybody who wants to get a hold of me can obviously call me or email me at any time or visit our website www.sunshineorganicsandcompost.com and yeah and they can they can get my contact information from there so Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. And we'll definitely add all of that information into the show notes for our listeners. Thank you so much. This has really been a great conversation and I wish you the best of luck with your business. Thank you, Lorianne. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the episode. You can find the resources and contact info mentioned in today's show on our website, sustainablenorthflorida.com. Today, we spoke with Mike about the work he does on a commercial scale, but he also works with residential customers. If you're looking for mulch or compost, they deliver orders of 10 yards or more in the Jacksonville area. If your order is less than that, you could pick it up yourself at their facility. Contact them at sunshineorganicsandcompost.com to learn more. We'll leave you today with one good thing. Duval County Public Schools received an EPA Clean School Bus grant that will bring 25 electric school buses to our area. That's not just a good thing. That's a great thing.